Acts chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 to 17 this morning, but before we get into that, uh, I want to take just a second to reiterate a point that Randy made earlier about our book study that we're doing. Uh, We just wrapped up A Praying Life by Paul Miller, and uh, this book was available from uh, the Nine Marks uh, ministry, and it's called Rediscovering Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential. And with everything being the way it is, one, in the American church in general, two, in a post-pandemic church, well, maybe, um, <laughs> maybe, um, this book is going to be a good resource that reminds us of the importance of the body of Christ. It's going to remind us of the importance of being not just a body in a seat, but an active member of this church and I would highly highly recommend that one you grab a free copy because we've got a few left up here and that you be a part of this book study that we're having probably two or three nights a month depending on how the schedule falls Uh, and we are doing it tonight we're starting a a week early because of canceling the the potluck that we were going to do so I challenge you to be here I challenge you to be a part of this book study. If there's a reason that you can't be here, maybe you don't like to drive at night, I'll come get you. All right, I'll, I'll take the van around and I will drop you off. You can sit in one of my kids' car seats and I will make sure you get here. All right, so I understand um, if you can't make it, but please try to be here. This will be very important for the life and body of our church. All right, so be here. Um, so now, it's been a while. Since we've been in the book of Acts, since we just wrapped up uh, the Advent season, the last time we looked at Acts, we were in Acts chapter 17. And so I want to give a little bit of a a recap of where we were so that it makes a little bit of sense of where we're going today. Uh, So in Acts 17, we saw where Paul had spent a short time uh, in the Macedonian cities of Thessalonica and Berea before he was once again chased out by a mob of angry Jews who didn't appreciate Paul's message that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Right? The people have been waiting for this Messiah, and they're still waiting for this Messiah. Paul is telling them that this Messiah is Jesus, and you've missed it, and they don't appreciate that. And so they, uh, they chase him out of these cities uh, one after another. And so... Even there, there's a great amount of success that did happen uh, in Thessalonica and Berea. Uh, the Christians there were concerned for Paul's safety, and so they convinced him to leave. So they escort him to Athens uh, to keep him from being hurt or maybe even killed uh, by the Jews in those cities. And as he's going to Athens, Paul leaves Silas and Timothy in Macedonia in order to keep up with the believers there um, and hoping that they will join him quickly. Right? They're integral parts of his ministry. He wants them to be with him. Um, and so he wants them to hurry, but they won't join him again until get, he gets to Corinth, which is what we're going to look at today. At the end of Acts 17, Paul gives uh, a pivotal sermon uh, to the people of Athens that helps them and us truly understand the nature of God. Right? It was a, uh, 
they had multiple gods, millions of gods. They used to say that you could find a god in Athens easier than you could find a man. Right? They had idols everywhere. And so Paul gets up, has the opportunity to preach. He says, look, there's one God who created everything. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's not found in any of these idols that you constantly make and worship. He's not found in any of these temples that you erect and try to offer sacrifices in. He says, look, if you have a God that needs as much as these gods need that you have created, right? they need you to move them around. They need you to feed them. They need you to offer things to them. He says, if, if you have a God that is that much in need, He is no God at all. Paul reminds them, he says, God, the creator of heaven and earth, doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need our worship. But what is best for us is our worship of Him. And he tells the people of Athens that the one God that they have missed in their worship, the Lord of heaven and earth, He has placed everyone from every time and every place. He's placed them in the world when they are, where they are, so that they might be able to find Him. But He's not far from any of them. And he also told them that because we are created in the image of God, we shouldn't think that God is in nature anything like the stone, the silver, the gold, any of the stuff that they're forming these idols out of. Like They build their idols sort of in their image. And Paul reminds them, he says, no, it's not about our image and we're trying to put God in that image. God created us in His image and that's the reason why we can think the way we think and the way we have, why we have morality and the reason why we can worship the way we worship is because we were created by God who adores one another in the Godhead. And so we reflect that in our core. Right? And t- after telling the people of Athens all this, he calls them to repent. He says, the day is coming where God is going to judge the world in righteousness. And on that day, Jesus, the one that has been rejected, is going to sit on the throne and he's going to be the one who is judging everyone. He says, we can know this is true because God raised Jesus from the dead. Right, I, I've said, I say this all the time. I hope that this is sinking deeply into your heart, your mind, your soul that the foundation of our faith is the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus is still in the grave, we are still lost in our sins. We have no relationship with God because of our rebellion against Him in our sin. But if Jesus rose from the, de- from the dead, then God the Father accepted His sacrifice. And that means that in His resurrection, He has conquered sin and He's conquered death forever. And because of that, we can be restored in our relationship with the Father. Because when he looks at us, he no longer looks at Chris Hamblin, the massive sinner. Right? When he looks at us, he sees Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life, who died the death that we deserve, who rose again because the sacrifice was acceptable. And now when he looks at me, he doesn't see me, he sees Jesus. Right? That's the message that he's preaching to the people of Athens. And as, as is always the case, the people there, some of them ridicule him. They're like resurrection from the dead. People don't rise from the dead. And people don't, like nobody does that. Not even all these millions of gods that we have here, none of them rise from the dead. And none of them raise people from the dead. 
But I mean, if we think about it, if God is really the Lord of heaven and earth, if he can simply create everything out of nothing by just by speaking it, how hard is it for him to raise someone from the dead? It's not hard at all. Not for God. But some ridicule, they're like, people don't rise from the dead. But there are some who want to hear more. They said, we would like to hear more about these ideas that you are sharing. We don't know how long Paul actually stays in Athens. It doesn't give us a timeline. It just says that he leaves and some of the people join him as he goes. If we are faithful with the message, then people will come to faith. People will come to faith. And that catches us back up to Acts chapter 18. All right, here, Luke is going to share with us how the church in Corinth was started. But before we get into that, let's pray and then we'll get into our passage. Father, we come before you grateful that we have your word so readily at our fingertips. And I pray that we are people who are shaped by it, who have a desire to be in it, and that we would be uh, people who are, are desirous to share it. So as we open it up, Lord, and as we uh, talk about this first opportunity to see the church in Corinth, I pray that you would help to open our eyes to the truth here, that you would open our hearts to hear from you and to shape our life in such a way that when we leave this place, we would reflect you in a greater way uh, than we did when we came in. Lord, I love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. It says, After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, and who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. So Paul leaves Athens, and he makes his way to Corinth. And Corinth was another major city, not quite as big as Athens, but it's another major city of Paul's day. And this is going to be the last place that he goes that's big in this missionary journey. All right, He, he sees the, the value in these cities, and so he makes it a point to go to these cities. So this is the last major place of witness that he's going to go on the second missionary journey. And Corinth was just under 50 miles west of Athens. And it was a place known for its political power. It was a place that was known for its commercial activity. And it was a place that was known for its sexual immorality. Right Their immorality was so prominent that there was a Greek word that literally meant to live like a Corinthian. And if someone said that about you, it means you were just an immoral person. Like, I mean, can you imagine that being said about you, that you live like a Corinthian? And the idea of that is basically, like, I came up with like, the idea of our tagline for Las Vegas, right? What happens in Vegas Stays in Vegas. See, y'all should not go there. Like you, mm, y'all knew that way too well. Like I ask Bible stuff and nobody says anything, and I talk about Vegas and everybody just repeats it. Y'all should be ashamed. With this in mind, right, we should understand Corinth to be very similar to Las Vegas. 
right? There's a lot of business going on there. There's probably a lot of politics going on there. And we know for certain that there's a lot of sexual immorality that goes on there. And so Luke tells us that when Paul gets to Corinth, he finds a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla who had been forced to leave Italy because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave. So they've, they've left Italy. They've made their way to Corinth. And we're not told a ton about Aquila and Priscilla at this point except they're tent makers by trade, which is something that Paul can relate to. Apparently he has experience in making tents. And so they allow him to stay with them and to make tents with them. Now, on the surface, you might not think that that's a big deal, right? I mean, it's just a job and a place to stay. I mean, they're really big on hospitality in this culture. So giving somebody a job, giving them a place to stay, it wouldn't be a big deal. But when you consider Paul's reputation, right, is this someone that you would want to have associated with your business and living in your home? Right? The hospitality is a huge deal. We saw in Acts chapter 17 where a man named Jason, that's all we know about him is his name and that apparently Paul must have stayed with him. A man named Jason had his home attacked and he was drug out in front of the city officials in Thessalonica just because he had association with Paul. All right, so this is no little thing here to have Paul associated with your business. This is how you're bringing in money and if the Jews want to rise up against this, they're going to attack you, they're going to attack your business, and they're going to attack your home. Right? Jason had to release, uh, pay a security bond to get out saying that Paul's never coming back here, and if he does, I lose all this money that I've given up in order to keep him away. So this could result in the loss of their home, the loss of their business, maybe even the loss of their lives. So... Having Paul in your life might end poorly for you, but we still see amazing hospitality from this couple. Right? Aquila and Priscilla were an amazing gift of God to Paul. And I mean, think about the life that he's been living. Just think about what the, just this missionary journey that he's traveled all over the place sharing the gospel. One commentary that I read stated that between the years of 49 and 52, Paul traveled 2,000 miles by foot. 2,000 miles by foot. And he traveled 1,000 miles by boat. All right? In three years? Four years? What is the math on that? I don't know. English. Um, so that's the distance between Raleigh, North Carolina and Denver, Colorado. In that, in that course of time, in that season where you're not calling Uber, you're not jumping on the train, uh, you're doing all of this by foot or by boat. He's traveling. He's barely staying anywhere for any length of time. Everywhere he goes, he finds himself threatened, beaten, or jailed. He's got to be weary, right? I mean, how long can you sustain that? Right, I mean, we hit little pockets of time in our life and immediately we hit our knees, we're praying, God, please take it away. Right, the duration of this man's ministry, he was told before he ever got into the ministry how much he was going to suffer for the name of Christ. And he goes and he does this. I mean, could you imagine how hard it's got to be for him to trust people? Yeah, that's right. Asher's my man, I'm telling you. It's got to be hard for him to trust people, especially Jews. 
Think about it. Who has been chasing him out of all of these cities? It's been the Jews. I mean, there's probably even something in the way of a reward or something if you can wrangle Paul up. If you can find a way to make something stick and keep him in jail without God supernaturally releasing him, I bet they might be able to get a reward of some kind, right? But given all the people who have been after him throughout his trip, you see these two people who open up their home, they open up their business, they're taking this massive risk. They have to be a source of peace for Paul. And we all need a brother or sister in Christ who treats us the way Aquila and Priscilla treat Paul. Do you have godly relationships like that? Do you have somebody that you can call on and you know immediately as soon as you do, there's going to be an open bed, or maybe an open couch, depending on how full their house is. Right? There's going to be an open place at their dinner table for you to sit down at. They're going to pray for you when you ask them to pray for you. Right? They're going to labor beside you when there is labor to be done. Do you have anybody in your life that's like Aquila and Priscilla? I mean, it should not be hard for us to come up with at least one name that's like that. It should not be that difficult in a church with this many people looking back at me right now for us to be able to say, I know several people just in this room who would be that for me. And on the flip side of that, what about you? Are you that for other people? Do people know that you have a bed in your house that has their name on it should they need it? Do they know that there's a place at the dinner table for you? For if I say I need it, you're going to give that to me verse that you're always welcome at my table i'm gonna put it that way do you have that and are you that for other people right we should be a source of peace in a crazy world where everyone is looking for a reason to cancel one another to backbite to stab in the back to find a way to step on your face to make better for themselves we should be a place of peace in this world for one another, and for the craziness that's out there. They should know that we are a place of peace. We should reflect the hospitality and the love of Aquila and Priscilla. We should always be looking for ways to show kindness. We should always be looking for ways to show hospitality. And we should be a safe place for the church when life gets crazy. And it's going to get crazy. Guaranteed. At some point in your life, life's going to get hard. And the church should be the place that everyone here in this place knows I can go there, it's safe, they love me, they will help me. We should be that for one another. So if the Apostle Paul were coming through our area with the type of trouble that he was known to bring, right? you put him in your house, somebody might burn it down. You put them in your business, they might take away your business. Would he find a safe place in your life? Are you willing to risk stuff like that for the good of the kingdom? For brothers and sisters in Christ? Would we be willing to put ourselves at risk for someone else in the faith? It's something to consider. Right? We might flippantly say, yes, of course. But where the rubber meets the road, is that something that you would actually do in your life? All right, well, when Paul 
gets to Corinth and works out where he's going to stay and what he's going to do to earn money, he gets back to what he's there for. Right? He begins going to the synagogue every week and trying to engage the Jews and the Greeks there with the gospel. And we're not sure how long he's been doing this, but at some point while he's doing it, Silas and Timothy, they arrive from Macedonia and this is going to change things up for Paul. Look at verses 5-8. through eight. It says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to the preaching and teaching uh, of the Word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there, went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. So after the arrival of Silas and Timothy from Macedonia, when, he gets, when they get there, he engages full-time in the work of his ministry. I don't know what it is. I think uh, we find in the book of uh, Thessalonians that he's getting money from the Philippian church. And so he's got a little bit of help in his pocket and he's got these brothers that he can count on to help with the work. And so he gets on full-time with the ministry. And as he always does, he wants to see the people of God. He goes to the Jews. He wants to see them come to faith. And so he enters into the synagogue and he shares with them week after week after week. And they constantly resist his message. They blaspheme Jesus in the process. So he shakes out his clothes and he looks at him and says, your blood is on your head. I'm innocent. He's tried. He's tried. He, he's done everything that he can to convince the people in the synagogue that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And at this point, all his efforts with the Jews have come to nothing. And so what's left for him to do? He's going to go where his efforts will be more fruitful. He's going to the Gentiles. That's right. In the process of announcing this, Luke says that he shakes out his clothes. All right, well, what's this about? Well, shaking out of the clothes has its origin back in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 13. Right? Where Nehemiah states, May God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. And so Paul, symbolically shaking out his clothes, he's leaving the Jews in Corinth with nothing. The promise is theirs for the taking. Right? They are God's people. He, he wants them to see the truth about who Jesus is. They have refused to see it. They've refused to accept it. And therefore, he's saying symbolically that because of this, you will have nothing. And he goes to the Gentiles. And it says right there next to the synagogue was a house belonging to Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. And we don't know exactly what this means for Titius to be a worshiper of God, but we do know that he's narrowed down all these possible gods from all these possible places that there is one true God. That's the only time when people are called worshipers of God. It's when there's just the one. So we don't know how well he understands all that. We don't know if he's even placed his faith in Jesus yet. But he le Paul leaves the synagogue, goes to Titius' house, and when this happens... Paul finally gets to see a little bit of fruit from his effort. 
Right? He leaves his efforts at the synagogue behind, and the leader of the synagogue finally gets it. Luke says in verse 8 that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. So you've got the leader of the synagogue coming to faith as Paul is you know, wiping his hands of it. The leader of the synagogue comes to faith, and it says, along with him, many of the Corinthians heard, believed, and were baptized because of the efforts of Paul. Now, for Paul to say, your blood is on your own heads, I'm innocent, there's sort of an implication there that Paul has some form of responsibility for their faith, right? right? He's, he's removing himself from that responsibility. And for him to remove himself from that responsibility, it implies that there was responsibility there before. So how would you take that? How does that work? Right? We can't make people believe. Right? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So we can't make people believe. So when he says, this is now on you, I'm innocent of your blood, I've done my part, the rest isn't on me, what's he thinking? Well, here in verse 6, Luke and Paul are indirectly pointing out to us that we have a responsibility of sharing the message of the Gospel. Right? We can't make people do anything with the gospel once they've heard it, but we have to make sure that they have heard it. And that's a responsibility that all the members of God's kingdom share. Right? you got too many people stepping back and they're leaving this to the professional Christians. They're stepping back, they're leaving it to the evangelists. Well, I'm just not spiritually gifted in that area. Well, I'm sorry, you don't get off that easy in God's kingdom. In Matthew 28, 18-20, in a passage that we refer to as the Great Commission, Jesus tells His disciples that their role is to take the Gospel to the whole world. It reads like this, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? This command of Jesus is timeless. Right? I'm with you to the end of the age. I'm always there. So as this command keeps moving through the disciples of God, Jesus is always there with each and every one of us. Everyone who calls himself a Christian is meant to take this commission as marching orders and they're meant to shape their lives around this purpose. Like if you're looking for God's will in your life, look at Matthew 28, 18-20. It's that simple. Right? Which house do I buy? Well, which neighbor will you share the gospel with? That one or that one? That one. Then buy that one. Which job should I take? That one or that one? Which one will you share with your coworkers the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, that one. We'll take that one then. Like everything about your life should revolve around your efforts to impact the kingdom of God. Paul knows this, and he lives it out, and he calls for those in the church to act in the same way. In Romans 10, 14, and 15, he says, How then can they call on him they have not believed in, and how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And he's not talking about me. He's talking about you. How can they preach unless they are sent? What do I say to you every single week? You are sent. 
You are the preacher. You are the one that God has sovereignly placed in the lives of the people around you, around your coworkers, around your family, around your neighbors, around your ball team. Whatever it is, you are the one that God has sent and it is your responsibility to share the gospel with them. If they will not accept it, then you shake it off and you move on to the next person. But it is our responsibility to share the good news. How can people believe if they haven't heard the message? It's nearly impossible. That's why God wants us out into the world. He says, don't be of the world, but in the world. We bear no responsibility for how they respond, but it is our responsibility to share the message. Do you remember back in Acts 17 where he's sharing this sermon? Acts 17, 26 and 27, he states that God placed people when they live and where they live so that they can seek Him. How is He accomplishing that? Through us. He's doing it through us. And through the generations that came before us and the generations that will follow us, the kingdom of God is all about the people of God taking the message of God to a lost and dying world and seeing lives change. We are His ambassadors. We represent Jesus and His kingdom. And we go into the world. We see all these different people that we meet in our life and we share that message with them. Does that resonate with you? Are you someone who's willing to share the Gospel with people? Not only willing, but do you make it a point? Everybody here, I guarantee you, if I asked you, you would say you were willing. But if I said, when's the last time you shared the gospel? Are you someone who has done it? When you enter into a conversation with people, are you looking for ways to include Jesus into the conversation? Are you listening for the possibility, is this maybe a brother and sister in Christ? Or is this someone that I need to share my faith with? Are you looking for that? Are you looking for the opportunity to share the good news? If not, why not? And I guarantee you, if I asked most of you, if the answer is no, the answer is going to be, if I say why not, it's because of fear. You are afraid. You're afraid of something. Right? Maybe it's how you'll be perceived. You don't want to, be look, you don't want to look like a weirdo. You don't want to be one of those religious people. Right? You're worried about how you'll be perceived. You're worried that they're going to ask you a question that you don't understand. Right? Maybe, what if I don't know the answer? Well, then you don't know the answer. They don't know the answer to every question either. It doesn't mean that they don't know anything. Maybe you're afraid of persecution. That's becoming a very real problem in our part of the world. It's not something that we've had to worry about for a long time, but it's coming. Maybe you're worried about persecution. It could be any number of things. And if that's the case, if you are afraid, just remember you're not alone. You're not alone in your fear. The Apostle Paul got scared too. You can't live the life that he's lived and experience what, what he's experienced and never experience fear. If you can go through life and never experience fear like that, given his life, you're a psychopath. You're crazy. Paul is not a psychopath. That's why God tells him, do not be afraid in the next part of our passage this morning. Verses 9 to 17, Luke says this. 
the Luke said to Paul in a night vision, don't be afraid. But keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. He stayed there a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. As Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or of a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about words, names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of such things. So he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But none of these things mattered to Gallio. So Paul's had it rough. He keeps moving from city to city, trying to avoid being killed by mobs. God understands what's going on in his heart. There's a good reason to be afraid. And here we see Paul receive a promise from God. He says, do not be afraid. I've got so many people in this city that need to hear this message. They're going to come to faith. I need you to be faithful. Don't be afraid. And so Paul keeps preaching. Paul keeps preaching and God protects. Like you see him gathered up by these people, right? They're, they throw him out before the, the Gallio, the proconsul, and he doesn't care. Right? Honestly, like as I was reading this, this is how I kind of thought Jesus should have been handled by Pilate. Right? Like he doesn't care. This is about, there's nothing, he's not doing anything wrong. Like you guys are just upset about the words he's saying. Words are not violence, right? This is not something that I care about. Don't bring this to me. And they said, well, maybe you'll care about this. And they grabbed the new leader of the synagogue, right? Crispus is like, thank God I got transferred out of that one, right? They grabbed the new leader of the synagogue. They beat him in front of the guy. And he's like, I don't care. I don't care. And Paul goes off and he continues to preach the message for a long time after that. And I don't know if you've read the book of First and Second Corinthians, but it's a messed up place. Like that's a jacked up church. And yet Paul loves them. He loves the work that Jesus is doing in them. He wants to see them flourish. He wants to see them grow. And he puts in a lot of time and a lot of effort to see that happen before he leaves. And so that brings us to some questions, some application questions. I've asked these questions. I just want to reiterate them. Do you have an Aquila or Priscilla in your life? And if not, why not? Right? Maybe you need to be the one to pursue that relationship. Right? Or are you an Aquila or Priscilla for someone else? Right? This is part of what it means to be in the body of Christ. This is part of what it means to be the church. Right? We're open-handed with our time, our talent, and our treasure. And we make sure that all the people of the kingdom that we have continual interaction with are good. Right? Do you need hospitality? Do you need work? Do you need food? What do you need? We're here for you. That's what the church is all about. You need people like that and you need to be people like that. Number two, share the gospel. 
Now, we bear a certain amount of responsibility for the faith of those that God has placed around us. Not for whether or not they believe, but if they have the opportunity to believe because we are sharing our faith. This is not optional for the people of God. This is a command of God on His people to be faithful with sharing the message. We're going to do that differently. All right? Like, we're going to interact with people in a, in a completely different way. So some of us may be the evangelists who get in front of hundreds of people and can proclaim the gospel like Billy Graham and just see hundreds of thousands of people come to faith. Or we might be the person that builds the relationship one at a time with a neighbor, with a coworker, with a family member, shares with them and sees maybe eight people in our whole life come to faith. But I don't care. I don't care how you do it. Just do it. Just find a method that works for you and go for it. And if you're like, I don't have any idea where to start, let's chat. All right, we'll go do it together for a little while if you want. I'll go talk to your neighbor. I went to talk to my neighbor the other day and knocked on the door and the, the lady there goes, hey, it's the preacher from across the street. Like, I got a name. I'm not just the preacher from across the street. But I'll be the preacher from Oak Grove that comes and knocks on doors with you. Absolutely, I will. Let's do it. Right? But we need to be sharing the gospel. We need to be doing what Paul has paved the way for us to do. And lastly, number three, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What do we have to fear from this life? The tail end of Romans 8, again, beautiful, beautiful. But it says famine, sword, nakedness, persecution, whatever it may be, none of it can remove us from the hands of God. All this other stuff that we cling so much to, like our... Our name, like we don't want people to smear our name. We're afraid that they might think we're dumb or something. Like that's ridiculous. Your name probably won't transfer two or three generations out of after this life. But the impact that we have for the kingdom will last for an eternity. Right? What, what else? Your job? You get laid off today. Next week they will replace you. That's not going to last. It's not going to last for eternity. Right? Your body? What you got? 90 years at the most? 100 years? 120 if, I don't know, God doesn't love you anymore and just wants to keep you around? Goodness gracious. I'm not trading eternity for 100 years. I'm not trading it. Right? What do we have to be afraid of? Everything will look like a speck of dust when we've been praising God for eternity for 10 billion years. Like, yeah, that was hard for 90. But 10 billion later, who cares? Right? Would you trade $90 for $10 billion? Would you trade it? Yeah, I would. Well, we need to think about our life in the same way. Like, we're building up treasure in heaven. Like, this place is not our home. And our God is a God of control who has all of this well in hand, and we don't need to be afraid. But there are people in this city, in this town, in this community that God has predestined to come to faith because you have taken your message to them. And we need to be willing to do that. No matter what it takes, no matter what it costs us, 
Let's be people who are known for taking our faith to the nations. Let's pray together. Father, it's my desire that we would see lives changed, that we would see this community turned up on its head because of people coming to the faith, that we would be people who lack fear, that we would see uh, eternity rightly, and we would not put all of our hope in what happens in this life. Lord, it's my desire that we would be people who have a willingness to do whatever it takes for the church, that we would be Aquilas and Priscillas, that we would open our homes, we would open our jobs, uh, we would open our wallets, our table, whatever it needs to be, Lord, that we would be um, willing to do whatever is necessary for a brother and sister in Christ who needs us. So Lord, help us to be these people. We can't do it without the Holy Spirit's help. We can't do it without the leading and guiding of your word and your spirit. So we beg you for that. We beg you to see impact in this kingdom, impact in this church, impact in our families. Lord, help us to see all of that. We ask this in your son's holy name. Amen.